All right, so we, um, we're now on week four of uh, our study through Acts. And the purpose for studying Acts, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know what all God's purposes are, but you know, we're getting ready to start, I think, a new chapter in the church's life. And I hope someday soon I'll have an announcement about that. But um, I, what do we want to be when we grow up is how I put it. Because there is something about the Holy Spirit that I think the church doesn't quite have the answer to. Uh, and I'm trying to figure that out and, uh, for us and for us to figure out together. And so that's why I said, well, let's, let's go to the book that talks about the most, the book of Acts. And so that's, that's why we started. There's a lot more going on uh, from, from the book of Acts, but that's kind of where I'm always trying to, where my attention is, you know, the Holy Spirit's actions in the book of Acts and, and how that works. So uh, let me pick up for those of you who missed last week and, or those of you who uh, forgot about last week. Here is the story so far, because this is like a two-part of the story. We, we were finishing chapter three, we're moving to chapter four, but uh, Peter and John uh, were heading to, to pray at the, at the temple about three o'clock in the afternoon, and they, they see a man who's been lame from birth, and they heal him in the name of Jesus. Now, that lame man then joins them for prayer in the temple, which would have probably been the first time he was allowed in the temple. Before that, he would have been considered unclean. And uh, he, he just like, hangs around them because he's just like so excited. Uh, we'll find out in chapter 4 that he actually has been lame for 40 years. So it's a very long time uh, to live as a lame man to suddenly be healed. And then uh, the, the next thing is that uh, when people come up to them and say, how did this happen? How did you guys do this? Peter immediately gives all the glory to God. And so this is like a pitch perfect example of what we're supposed to be as Christians here, right? So everything's gone right. He was going to pray. He sees a need. He meets the need. When people say, you are amazing, because I'm not amazing, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. He's the amazing one. And so he, he puts all the glory to God. So we're going to pick the story up right there. That it switches in our book chapters, but I think everybody knows this. There are no chapters or verse numbers in the real Bible, in the things that were written. Those are added like a couple hundred years later by monks who were trying to always trying to remember how to, where they left off to copy things. So it's an invention. So chapter three and four for us is chapter three and four. For them, it's just the continuation of this long paragraph. Anyway, so we're going to pick that up now. Here's the next thing that happens. As Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and captain of the temple guard. I love that. The church has its own temple guard. I need to speak to some of you former police officers and MPs. We need to get our own temple guard. Isn't that great? You know, have our own temple guard. Uh, and uh, the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they're teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection for the dead. Now, the, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Um, the Pharisees were kind of a little bit split on it, but the Sadducees, part of what they believed in their sect was there is no resurrection of the dead. And so they were taking this opportunity of telling people about the healing to also talk about Jesus rose from the dead, which was greatly disturbing the Sadducees, so that's why they go get the guards. And they grabbed them. Some translations, they laid hands on them, but I don't like that translation because it makes it sound like they're going to pray for them. They ain't praying for them. They're grabbing them, uh, and they take them, and they put them in jail. So apparently the temple also has its own jail. This is like amazing to me. Uh, for it was already evening, and then they didn't want to do any trials now. Everybody's going home, but not Peter and John. We're going to keep them in jail overnight. That's what we're going to do. Now, you have to understand that Israel was a theocracy, which means that, you know, God was part of, you know, their belief. God, God like, controlled the government, which meant that the priest class became the ruling class of Israel in these days. There is Herod, but he's pretty much a puppet king. 
Uh, so they took over, and it was entirely run by men, and, and we all know what kind of men they were. But they used this as power. So this is not a small thing. This isn't like you're put, you're put in church jail, you know, where you have to have three people pray for you and get out or something weird like that, like for Sunday school. But um, this is a real thing. They could do almost anything to them except kill them. They weren't allowed to do that officially. I mean, I guess they could beat them near death and bad, bad things, accidents happen. But they weren't allowed to put them to death. But they're allowed to stone them, they're allowed to beat them, they're allowed to whip them, they're allowed to take their possessions, they're allowed to cast them out of um, the city. They're allowed to do a lot of things to them under uh, Jewish law and Roman law. So this isn't a small deal at all. So anyway, uh, but those who had already heard uh, joined the others. And so they were 3,000, if you remember from the second chapter of Acts, and 2,000 more joined them. So now we're 5,000 strong. They've become a mega church uh, in a very short period of time. And the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. This is something that's known as the Sanhedrin. Uh, it's, a, it's an official kind of a, a, a jury that's, that's held by the, by the priests. Jesus was called before the Sanhedrin as well. So anyway, so this is the big deal, and they're going to, they're going to accuse them. Now, I want to put, put yourself for a moment in Peter's place. What did he do wrong? You know, it's like, what in the world did he do wrong? He, he, was, he was doing everything right. He was going to pray. He saw a need. They healed the person. They gave glory to God. And people asked him, how's this done? I said, well, you need to know about Jesus Christ. Well, I thought he's dead. No, he's not dead. So it all makes sense that they were just doing the right thing. And yet they're being thrown in jail overnight while everybody else goes home to their dinner. And they're going to face a trial the next day. And I'm just going to tell you something in case you hadn't realized this in life bad things sometimes happen to good people. In fact, sometimes bad things happen to good people who've done good deeds. I don't know uh, if you knew that, but that does happen. C.S. Lewis uh, says in one of his books, no good deed goes unpunished. It's even, you know, he's a little more cynical than me. Not sometimes, if you do something good, you can expect something bad to happen to you because of it. And um, this kind of violates our sense of rightness and wrongness, doesn't it? Because they're doing good things, they're good people, good things should happen to them. It would be so much easier in life, wouldn't it, if good people, good things happen to, and bad, thi bad people, bad things happen to. In fact, there's a part of our belief system that believes that. And we can't seem to shake it, really. Uh, that we just think, you know, if I don't do the right thing, God's going to get angry and zap me here, you know. And I better do the right thing, or else God won't answer my prayer. You know, some of that goes on in your head sometimes. And we even use it when we talk about other people, not just ourselves. Uh, we just got rained out uh, praise fest, right? So we're praying that God will move the rain, which he did last year for Summerfest. Those of you who <laughs> remember, we remember those, those clouds just moved and we had a bright, sunshiny day. But it didn't happen this time. Well, why not? Who didn't pray? Who, who didn't pray this time that prayed last time? Whose fault is this? What did we do wrong? Why does God not bless our praise fest, right? So there's, there's some kind of a thing that kind of goes in in your mind. What happened? What went wrong? Maybe, it's, maybe you can make it more personal than that for your life, right? Maybe there's something in your life that's like, you know what? This went wrong in my life. It must be something I did. It would be really nice if we had that kind of transactional faith. And there are even preachers and denominations that kind of teach that transactional faith. That's not how it goes. The, the verse that came to me when I got up at 5 a.m. yesterday and saw the rain and said, God, what's going on? Do you not care? We just wanted to praise your name. Is that so wrong? You know, what's, what's going on here? The verse that popped into my head instantly was the rain falls. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Because 
if you read the scriptures starting at the very beginning in Genesis up to the time Jesus starts explaining things to people, he's not saying that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. That's the way God designed the world, you know, for blessings to be on good people. But sin corrupted the world. And ever since that moment, bad things happen to good people. And sometimes bad people seem to be getting away with stuff. And that's how life is. And in fact, if you take Jesus Christ out of the mix, nothing in this world will ever make sense to you. I'm just warning you right now. Because until you realize that Jesus came here to redeem all this, this world doesn't make sense. If you try to make sense out of this world, and that's your entire world and your entire theology, you're going to be very disappointed in life. Because sometimes bad things happen to good people because they do good things. And that's what happened to Peter. Now, Peter's a different person in the book of Acts than he is in the Gospels kind of have fun with Peter a little bit in the Gospels because he's us. He's our guy because he does weird things and stupid things like we do in the Gospels. But man, I'll tell you what, when that Holy Spirit hits him in Acts chapter 2, he flips. Talk about a pivot. And you can start seeing the man that Jesus saw when he chose him. And he is just rocking it. So I don't know if Peter sat in jail asking God what's going on or not. He may not have. But I'm going to ask it for him, man. God, what's going on? Well, what's going on is that bad people are in charge of things, and they're going to try to get Jesus' name hushed. And just so you know, they'll always try to get Jesus' name hushed if they can. And if they can't, they're going to try to mock it. So Ananias the priest was there, the high priest. This is the biggest, highest you can get. And when they placed them in the center, you know, there's like this like little tiny room and have all these, the way they've set these things up, I've ever seen them, like, like, they're like real high. The judges sit high and they look down on the accused. And they said, by what power or in what name have you done this? What's this they're talking about? Well, this horrible thing of healing a person. Now, what makes you think you could go around healing people? What, what power gives, what gives you the right to go around healing people? This man who was lame for 40 years, what gives you the right to heal him? They want to know what authority they have. And this is interesting. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, well, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a kindness done to a sick man, I like how he starts this. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're holding us accountable for a kindness that we gave to a sick man? Is that, is that what this is? You can almost hear the judges shifting uncomfortably. How can you put people on trial for that? I mean, how can you say, oh, we don't want this happening in our temple? Uh, but I don't know. I think there's some churches in, in America that don't want it happening in their churches. We don't want to see that. You know, we, you know, just stay away from that. We don't want to see that. So um, I'm going to go back now. I, I preached a sermon last week that I'm not particularly proud of. I don't know why. It just didn't seem to come together right. And I actually forgot a very important point. So I'm going to pick it up right now because Peter just said something really important. Uh, and I'm going to flash back to what is the great divide in the church today. I've talked about this before. There's di when it comes to the Holy Spirit, there's two different sides. And they've got the one side called the secessionists. The secessionists believe that the Holy Spirit no longer performs miraculous deeds on earth. Uh, and the other side, you have you know, a lot of different um, names for them. I'm going to call them the, today the word of faith, specifically the word of faith people that believe if you have enough faith, anything is possible. Um, so the, the argument for the secessionists, which by the way, there's no scriptural backup for it all. There's no verse that will tell you this in the Bible. So they study church history to come up with this. They say, look, the purpose of the miracles was to, were to authenticate the disciples, to let you know the disciples spoke for God, and also to start the church and to write the scriptures. That was, in their, in their opinion, the only reason for the miracles. And so once the church was started, once the last book of the Bible was written, uh, and the last disciple died, which would have been John, uh, then uh, the miracles ceased to happen on earth because they didn't need them anymore. We have the Bible now. 
So as long as we have the Bible, that's all we need. That's the secessionist view, like in a very small nutshell. Anyway, so the whole purpose of miracles was signs and wonders, but it ignores the fact that God doesn't just do miracles to show off. He doesn't just do miracles so he can tell you how great he is. The miracles are done first and foremost, and I think it's important that that's what Peter started with, out of kindness. The very first reason God always does these healing miracles is out of compassion for the people who need them. And you might convince me that God doesn't need to authenticate disciples anymore, but you're never going to convince me that God stopped being compassionate to people. That never stopped. What, you know, once, Paul, once John left, God's lost his compassion for people on earth who had, who had problems? I don't think so. And we see in uh, Matthew 14, 14, Jesus does the very same thing. When Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. That's, that's it. He was moved with compassion, and he healed their sick. He didn't need to be authenticated anymore, but he was moved with compassion for them. And that's what Peter starts with. Look, we showed kindness to a man. That's what we did. That's exactly what we did. So he's talking again about the compassion. The very first thing that God always does in a miracle is show compassion and mercy. And that's what we should pray for, by the way. We don't deserve miracles. We're asking for mercy. We're asking for something we don't deserve. We're asking for compassion. Um, but on the other side of that, you have the Word of Faith group. And the Word of Faith group tells you, and this is really strange too, that uh, everything that you pray for is dependent upon your faith. Which really weird, stick with me for a minute, those of you who like theology. They've actually made faith works with this teaching. Because now it's all about your faith. Your miracle that you're praying for is all about you. God doesn't even get a vote in it. It's all about you. If your faith is good enough, then you'll get your healing. If your faith isn't good enough, then you won't get your healing. So the secret is to learn how to get this faith. And of course, you can buy DVDs, CDs, and books to teach you how to do that. But that's the secret of it, right? It's all about your faith. So your faith has now become works. But here's the thing. Uh, the healing of that lame man, this is interesting, is the first miracle of the Christian church blows apart both sides of it because the healing of that man was not due to faith. And I'm going to flash back to Acts chapter 3 real quick. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. That's all he's asking for. He's not even saying some kind of ambiguous thing like, have mercy on me. That's what they used to do with Jesus. A little bit more ambiguous. Give me money if you want to. Do more of that because they knew who Jesus was, right? Have mercy on me is what they call it to Jesus. But he doesn't even ask them that. He asks them specifically for money. He's not even thinking he can be healed. He may not even know who they are. They're just walking in the temple. He asks him specifically for money, and Peter looks straight at him, as does John, and Peter says, look at us, because he's looking at the ground. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get some money from them. This is clear. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, is very, very clear. This man is not asking or seeking or expecting a miracle. He's expecting money. And Peter heals him anyway. Where's the faith? He doesn't even ask for a miracle. Talk about lack of faith. Doesn't even ask for one. I'm not blaming him for that. He's been lame for 40 years. That's not even on his radar as a possibility. He just wants coin. And he does something amazing. So clearly, this isn't just a question of faith. And the, the word of faith people tell you that not only does that person need faith, everybody, per, everybody praying for them needs to faith. And if there's somebody in the, in the circle praying for them that has doubt, you kick them out of the circle because you can't have any doubt here. It's all about the faith. Clearly, that's not true. So uh, I'm not exactly sure where we're heading with this about miracles, but whatever, wherever we're heading, both sides are wrong because the, the scriptures disprove them both. So anyway, back to the story. That was, that was the part I missed last week. So 
caught up on that. Okay, so Peter continues. So after he says, look, I healed this man out of compassion because the Holy Spirit moved me to, he continues. He says, now how I was able to do that, if you want to know, I'll tell you, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead by the name, this man stands now here before you in good health. So then he does go on, and he says, first of all, it's mercy, but now he's actually saying, this is to testify to Jesus Christ. That's the, purpose of, that's the second purpose of miracle, not the first, the second. He is, in, um, he is the stone which was rejected by you. Now, he's quoting scripture here, and he, he says, this is a stone which was rejected by you, but which became the chief cornerstone. That was a prophecy about the Messiah. He'll be rejected by the builders, but he will become the cornerstone of everything, or the capstone. All right, uh, and then he goes on and says, and in fact, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men which, by which we must be saved. This is why I say again and again and again, Jesus matters. Don't ever take Jesus out of our churches. Jesus matters. It's his name that makes everything else possible. Jesus matters. And I love this next part. They observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood they were uneducated, untrained men. They were amazed. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. Listen, a man with theology will always give way to a man with a testimony. What in the world could they say? No. <laughs> he's, he's been lame for 40 years. Your God's a lie? He was lame for 40 years. He's standing there in perfect health. How in the world could they combat that? I, I just say that because I know, you know we may be starting this class up about how to defend your faith. The best defense of your faith is your testimony. By far and away. People worry about, I don't know enough Bible to share my faith. Don't share the Bible, then share your testimony. They can't argue with your testimony. You can say, this is what I used to be, and here's what I am now. They can't argue with that because it's just the truth of your life. Right? And, and so a lot of times Christians get caught up in, I don't know chapter and verse of the Bible. Do you know what God's done in your life? Start there. Because it's the testimony that really resonates with people anyway. People quote scripture, they quote whatever they want. People quote poets who are dead and, and celebrities. People can quote anybody. But man, when you say, but this changed my life, you'll find people have no argument for you anymore. Because they can't argue with that. It's just true. A person with a theology always will give way to a, to a person with a testimony now. Let's talk about Peter's defense. So, because what he's done is he sets up again, first and foremost, he's telling you, you know, that, that um, this was an act of kindness. But there's something that happens even before that that I want to stop on for a second. Because like I said, I'm, I'm always kind of looking out for the hand of the Holy Spirit at work here, right? Uh, my father said once, and I, I love this, he said, God's hands are always moving in our lives, but every now and then he slows them down enough for us to catch a glimpse, right? And I think the Holy Spirit's always moving, but he slowed down enough that we caught a glimpse of him right here at the very beginning. It starts at uh, Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stopped for a second. I thought Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, those of you who were here a couple weeks ago, the Holy Spirit descends upon all the apostles. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in tongues. And then Peter stands up and preaches the sermon of his life. 3,000 people get saved. The Holy Spirit filled him. Why is, John, uh, why is the, the author here, Luke, telling us again, and Peter filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, there's two ways you can translate this sentence. One of them is he's just telling us Peter who is filled with the Spirit. The other one's to say the Holy Spirit filled Peter but I thought he had the Holy Spirit. See, that's the interesting thing to me. Um, 
I don't know if you guys know who Sam Shoemaker was, uh, but I love what he said. Somebody asked him once if he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes, yes, I was filled with the Holy Spirit, but I leak. <laughs> um, I think maybe Peter wasn't leaking, but I think this starts giving us uh, some kind of a hint as to exactly what's going on with the gifts of the Spirit. Now, teaching and preaching is a gift of the Spirit. And I believe the Holy Spirit filled him and he began to teach because he was teaching the Sanhedrin, the who's who, the smartest people in the land about the scriptures, things about the scriptures they had never seen. And they are amazed because they know he's uneducated. Now, probably he was illiterate. Uh, he probably could not read or write at least what they were used to. For some reason, no one uh, that I could read could explain. The high priest caste of Jerusalem at that time, the language they used to communicate in, what they wrote in, what they talked in, was not Hebrew, it was Greek. I don't know why. And that's why your New Testament is written in Greek, by the way, because they were writing to those people. So it was Greek. You know, Rome's there, Latin's the language of land, or maybe just as a, as a rebellion against the empire, I guess they won't pick Latin. But Greek is what they always used. Peter probably did not read and, read and speak and write well, speak maybe, but, but not write Greek. He probably spoke in Aramaic mostly, which was a common tongue. Uh, people believe that the Gospel of Mark, uh, you know who Mark is because he wasn't a disciple, they believe that he was the translator for Peter. He was his scribe who could write, write Greek. And so the Gospel of Mark was what Peter told him about the Gospel, and he wrote it down. And that's what people, people believe. So um, here is a man who's completely uneducated. He may be speaking to them in Aramaic for all we know, but he's explaining things about Scripture that they don't know. He's connecting dots. He's pulling Scripture out of places and showing them the meaning of it, and they're just looking at him just enthralled. This is a gift of teaching and preaching. Don't miss it. This is a gift. The Holy Spirit comes upon Peter, and he speaks. And I think this is giving us a hint of what the Holy Spirit's supposed to be in our lives. Because we have a tendency to look at gifts as it's mine now, I can do whatever I want with it. But I don't think that's true of spiritual gifts. I believe spiritual gifts are given to us and they have a manifestation in the physical world, but when the Holy Spirit hits it, it turns it supernatural. That's what I believe. And I believe the reason we're not seeing some of the supernatural stuff is in the Holy Spirit is us. But the gifts are still there. That's what I believe. I think that's where we're starting to find. We see this in, um, and I don't have the scripture for this, but we see this in, in the life of uh, Samson. And I know that we don't normally think of strength as a gift of the Spirit, but he had strength as a gift of the Spirit. He was a judge. He was elected by Israel, uh, by, appointed by God, not elected by, appointed by God to be the judge of Israel, right? He was a very strong man. By nature, he was a very strong man. Probably the strongest man in Israel. But what he does is beyond human strength. What he does is supernatural strength, but not always. The Spirit of God comes upon Samson, and he picks up a jawbone of an ass and kills a bunch of Philistines with it. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson, and he lifts up a gate and, and throws it. You know. he, he's able to do these things. He rips, the uh, uh, Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson, and he rips a lion in half as though it's a young goat, which actually sounds hard ripped to me too, but apparently that could be done. But he just rips a line in half uh, like, it's a, like it's nothing. But the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and he has that strength. When he's later, as we famously, you know, he, he tells the secret of his strength is he's taken a Nazarene vow and he can't shave or cut his hair. And Delilah has people come in and cut his hair. He loses his strength, not physically, he loses his strength supernaturally. 
because they put him to work in physical labor. After they blind him, they, st- they set him to, to grind in the grinding, and he pushes that heavy thing, and they grind all the meal. That's, that's his job. He's like a donkey who's working. But his hair grows back, and he repents. And then he asks the boy to take him to the middle of, of the temple you know, at the very end, and he puts his hands against the supporting pillars, and he pushes them across. That was beyond physical strength of a human there. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he had supernatural strength again. So we see that in the life of Samson, and I'm going to propose to you that's actually how the Holy Spirit works. Peter had the gift of teaching given to him, but when the Holy Spirit ignited it, it went into another level, and he was able to explain things that they had never seen before with a clarity that, that just astounded them. And I believe that's how all the, all the gifts of the Spirit work. They're there, but they're supposed to be ignited with the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think that's what uh, Luke is telling us here. When the Holy Spirit, he said, filled Peter, that's it. like, okay, ready to go preaching? Boom, here comes the Holy Spirit. It's going to be supernatural. And I believe that's what's going on here. Um, and we see some of this going on even in Jesus' life. In Luke uh, chapter 6, uh, one day he, that was Jesus, was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there, all of whom doubted him, by the way, uh, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, from Jerusalem. And then watch this. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. The power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. So he does. In other words, Jesus needed the power of the Lord to do it too. And we see this actually in a couple places in the scripture. The power of the Lord was present. So he says, okay, and a power connected with Jesus' gift, and he healed them. So anyway, um, the gifts of spirit designed to be used with the spirit, and I think that's a big problem for a lot of people because they don't want the spirit in their lives. They don't really want the Holy Spirit in their lives. And the reason is because the Holy Spirit has to lead us. See, the Holy Spirit's not magic that we command. That's kind of how it's taught in some places. This magic power, if you have faith, you have what you need in order to command it. That really gets into Wiccan belief and theology and, and, the, and the Druids, and it's really not scriptural, right? But they kind of have seeped in. But it's not magic that we command. We are the vessel through which the Holy Spirit works. That's the point of it. The Holy Spirit works. But that means we have to be doing the Holy Spirit's will, not ours. And a lot of people just don't like that. We want to tell the Holy Spirit what to do. The Holy Spirit wants to tell us what he needs us to do. And he wants to flow through us and do his work. And wherever we get the fact that we're not the commanders, we're the vessel, I think we'll be doing a lot better in getting some of our prayers answered because the Holy Spirit, I believe, still wants to, wants to work through us. Peter later would write, um, each one has received a special gift. So employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Let me break that down. He's saying, here's what happens. You've got a gift from the Holy Spirit. You're a steward of that gift, and you need to use it to serve others. Not yourself, others. And so he said, you need to do that. And so whoever speak, you know, you're speaking as though you're speaking for God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who's serving by the strength which God supplies. So this is what I believe we're missing here, is that the, the, the Holy Spirit connects and it gives us strength to do what we need to do. Now it could be physical strength, but it could also be spiritual strength, whatever the gift is. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. All right, one more point before I go, because um, this is really, that's really the sermon, but I want to throw this other one out there because this is cool. Uh, just being around Jesus makes you smarter. 
I don't know if you've noticed, but hanging around smart people make you smarter. I don't know if you've noticed that in your life. <coughs> I've had the privilege of working with true geniuses in my work, uh, and just hanging around them is just great. You're just talking to them about almost anything because your mind looks at things differently. You know, and you're like, wow, I never thought of that. It's really kind of cool. Um, and being with Jesus is being with the smartest person ever, the mind of Christ. So just hanging around him makes you smarter. If you need to be smarter in your life, and here's one of those things, again, you know, when he's with you and it has a supernatural, but the gift remains, right? So it just makes you smarter. Jesus will raise your IQ. Let me just put it that way. If you're honestly serving him and just being with him, Jesus will raise your IQ. Peter was a fisherman. He knew all about fish. And then Jesus came by and taught him more about fish. And he realized, wow, I can learn a lot off of this man. And so he hung around him for three years, and now he has, a, he has a much higher IQ. And then when the Holy Spirit said it, goes supernova. But <coughs> this word here, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Uh, so that word boldness is an interesting choice of a word. And for us, when, if I said, hey, someone spoke boldly, what would you think? Uh, maybe loudly, uh, you know, maybe, maybe they offended people with what they had to say. That's kind of what we would think bold means. But the word bold, boldness in Greek actually means openly, but without ambiguid, ambiguity. Uh, uh, what that means is clear, with clarity. Boldness really is kind of clarity. They're saying they spoke without fear, with great clarity, and without the use of comparisons. That's the other thing. You know, a lot of times people hide things in metaphors. and you know, Nope, they just told it like it was. You know? Peter's just sitting there and says, I'm just the guy telling you how it is. And he just was this clear, cut, simple, direct, and he brought everything together. He's like uh, kind of Chili Palmer character, you know? This is my associate, Chili Palmer. Uh, he's going to be working with me. Ronnie, look at me. I'm the one telling you how it is. Okay. Peter, look at me. I'm the one telling you how it is. And he doesn't care. He has no care at all about what they think of him. He doesn't care about that. Uh, they have the power to beat him, whatever. Doesn't care. I'm just here telling you how it is. And he says, you want me not to tell you about Jesus Christ? Too bad, because nothing on earth will make sense if I, if I take Jesus out of the picture. So there's no way I'm taking Jesus out. And every time, you know, you can almost see them. It's like every time he says... Um, you know, Jesus Christ, they cringe, like, oh, not that name, stop saying that name, you know, say, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, you know, oh, no, not that name, or something like that, because they keep telling him to shut up. They warn him, it says, if you don't stop speaking about Jesus Christ, we're going to beat you. Peter says, okay, beat me. What do you want me to do? Did you see this man, 40 years of lame, who's now healed? Did you see him? Do you want me to listen to the one who did that, or you? And what, what do you want me to, who, who would you choose? You know, really, let's just look at this honestly. Who would you choose? I'm not going to stop talking about Jesus. And they, had, they went off and had two conferences. You know, what are you going to do? I don't know. And they realized the guy standing there next to them on lame feet, they aren't lame anymore. What are we going to do? Are we going to tell the people that they're not right? Who have we healed? You know, it's like when, when they ask Jesus by whose authority he casts out demons, he says, I don't know. Who's authority you cast demons out? Oh, that's right, you don't. You know, it's like, what's the, you know, what, what do you want me to tell you? It's Jesus Christ. What, I can't, you, don't, you want me to not tell you the truth? You're asking me the question. If you don't want to know the truth, stop asking the question. I'm just telling you how it is. That's it. That's all there is to it. And later on, Peter would write this. He says, look, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy has never had in its origin the human will, but prophets through humans spoke Though, I'm sorry, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He says, here's how this goes. I'm not speaking my words. I'm speaking God's words. 
you don't like it, don't kill the messenger. You've got to talk to the one who's got the words. This just the Spirit's carrying him along. This is what he's talking about. Later when he writes about it, the Spirit carried me along. Like I saw the words coming out of my mouth almost for the first time. Wow, that's amazing. And he was connecting dots and he was showing things to them. He was speaking clearly and he wasn't using metaphors. He wasn't using some kind of ambiguous thing. He was just flat out telling them, look, you murdered Jesus Christ and you shouldn't have because he was the Messiah and I can show you why. And he starts pulling it all out of them. And I go, man, I can't even keep up with this guy. He knows scriptures I've never heard. He just, he's just going at it because the Spirit is carrying him along. But in order to get there, you have to be willing to be where Peter was in his life. And his life was this, I will follow you, Lord, wherever you take me. I don't care. In fact, if you read the, the two letters that Peter penned, there's an awful lot in there about, they might kill you for this, but it's okay. And he really is flat out telling people, they may kill you for this, but it's all right. Because what you need to learn is, Death isn't the biggest or worst thing that can happen to you. Whenever you get that, whenever you understand that death's not the worst thing that can happen, then you are, st are starting to see what Jesus was trying to tell us. You're going to take that out of the picture. What you need to do is say, I'm not going to worry about this little world of mine. I'm going to start worrying about Jesus' words. I'm going to follow him. We don't want to do that. We want joy Jesus to join in with our lives. Hey, Jesus, come here and join my life. God is my co-pilot. Listen, if God is your co-pilot, you're in the wrong seat. Okay. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. God who knows everything, why don't you be the pilot? I'll be the co-pilot. Or maybe I'll just serve peanuts to the disciples in the back. I'll let you drive, right? I, I'm, I'm going to let you be the pilot, not my co-pilot. We don't, we don't need God to join in with our lives. We need to join in with his. Because that's where we see the amazing things. The shepherd does not follow the sheep. If the shepherds follow the sheep, they're all in trouble. The Holy Spirit will lead us where he wants us to go and he will equip us with what we need when we get there. If we can have the faith to believe that, we will see the miracles return to our lives. Would you all please pray with me?